Welcome to a dialogue on accountability in the digital age. A dialogue with representatives of a global, multi-stakeholder community. And I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Michael Nelson. Michael, Michael welcome to the program. Good to be here, Fritz. Now, I'm glad we're here to continue the conversation we started in Malaysia. We will definitely start and continue uh, continue our uh, conversation in Malaysia. And allow me to introduce you to the audience. You are a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. You are the former director of Techno Internet Technology and Strategy at IBM, where you manage a team developing IBM's next generation for internet strategy. You are a global uh, leader of tomorrow, according to the World Economic Forum. And I'm assuming that's predominantly because you were uh, you served as a professional staff member on the Senate Subcommittee on Science, Technology, and Space. And you joined President Al Gore in the White House and worked with Bill uh, Clinton's senior, science advisor uh, on the global information infrastructure. So a very relevant, strong background in policy, information technology. Uh, and also, I'd like to point out, a uh, former professor at Georgetown, and if I may, also a Bill Gates lookalike. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, Mike, we're going to talk about how you help people understand technology. And one of my first questions for you before we're going to dive in the deep end, what is the most difficult part for people, for policymakers to understand when we talk digital technology these days? Well, often policymakers want to understand what comes out of technology, right? They want they they would like to teach, would like to think of technology as a black box. You put some things in and you get an answer out. In some cases, it's a policy recommendation. Other cases, it's a number for a financial uh, program. But they they think that they don't need to understand what's in there. And this is a particularly bad problem when it comes to the internet, because a lot of policymakers want to, quote, regulate the internet. And by the internet, they mean what they see on the screen. And they don't understand all the different layers of the internet, all the different types of services that have to combine together to deliver the bits and the services that they want to use and that their constituents come to rely on. And so they often try to write a rule that will apply to the whole internet. And they don't distinguish between the people who are merely moving trillions of bits per second across fiber optic cables or across uh, networks of uh, cell towers. They don't distinguish those people who are really just carrying the water, right? They're just like the plumbers. Yeah. On the other end of the situation are, are the people who are actually running specific services that rely upon the internet. And those people, in some ways, they, they, they have more responsibilities and government can ask more of them. But when policymakers step in and say, oh, we have a problem with terrorists using the internet, and they turn to everybody from AT&T and T-Mobile who are carrying the bits to Facebook and YouTube who are providing a, a service that is actually curated and, and, and can be 
uh, um, more aware of what people are doing with their service. And then in between, you have layers for security, layers for domain names. And again, those people aren't really in a good position to figure out which of the billions of people who use their service each year are doing, quote, bad things with them. So that that's my biggest challenge is this idea that the Internet is all just one thing and we can ask everybody associated with it to do a, a certain set of, of, of regulations. And, and, and it just doesn't work that way. It's not practical. You have to ask the right person at the right layer of the stack, the right, the right type of service <clears throat> to step up and provide the uh, uh, answers that policymakers and their constituency are demanding. The other problem I think is that there are too often simple solutions that sound so easy and are almost always wrong. And that's that's the other challenge. And it's it's partly the fault of the IT industry. For at least 30 years, the IT industry has been saying, we can do incredible things. We're amazing. We can just solve all of your problems. And so when the policymakers step up and say, well, why don't you let us spy on all the bad people and protect the privacy of all the good people? Why don't you figure out a way to do all those things together? And when the Technologists say, well, pick one or the other. The policymakers said, well, you're so smart. You figure it out. You do both. <laughs> and it's okay. Yeah, it's it, just it, not possible yeah. to do some yeah. of the things that policymakers are demanding. Uh, but what policymakers are demanding based on the promises and what's being communicated by the IT industry, if I hear you correctly. Well, again, it's the PR side, not the technology side that has uh, promised us everything. I got that. Okay. Now, is this also a main part of your work now as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment? A lot of what I do at the Carnegie Endowment is what I've done in previous jobs, which is stopping stupid stuff. And that means talking to policymakers who are trying to address a problem and helping them very early on in the process understand the full range of tools that they could use and also understand all of the different organizations and companies and technologies and research groups that might be able to help them solve the problem. Um, there's always more than one way to solve a problem. And sometimes you want two or three or five different ways to solve the problem. Um, one of my other big challenges is pushing back against governments that want to insist that there is one answer and we have to make one standard and then we have to impose that standard on everybody. Um, that's probably not the most efficient way to do it because different groups of users on the internet are doing different things. And for those different things, we need different levels of security. We need different uh, tools. And so it's not uh, it's not usually a case where one standard fixes everything. Okay, and to what extent also does uh, come into play th that the internet and the technology doesn't recognize boundaries? So it's it it it's a... well the design of the internet was global from the very start. Yeah. Um, there are places where 
nationality comes into play. Uh, clearly, we have national domain names, yeah. dot .us and dot .de for Germany and dot .uk, um, but they're not uh, exclusive. You know, if you're in the UK, you can also use .com and you can use .org. And there are, there are global tools that were designed to work across boundaries. And it's very hard for governments to try to impose national restrictions on services that are being provided outside their borders. They're trying, mm -hmm. uh, particularly when it comes to data localization. Uh, we just released a paper on how India and Korea are struggling with this problem. They're trying to keep certain types of sensitive data, particularly map data, inside their country. Yet at the same time, they want to be a global player and provide information services to companies all around the world. So it's a paradox. They, they want all the rest of the world to share data with Korea and India, but, not but at times they don't want to share their citizens' data and particularly corporate data uh, outside the country. But at the end of the day, you can provide very good security and you can provide an accountable system that spans boundaries. Um, this is another one of the myths of the internet that somehow if you keep your data inside your country, it will be safer. Um, not the case. How so? Well, one problem, particularly for smaller countries, is that they're not going to have uh, the ability to have dozens of different data centers that will be reliable and uh, provide backup if there's a natural disaster or an electric out, uh, electricity outage. Um, so that's a, a matter of resilience. But it's also often the case in smaller countries that if you are keeping data locally, it's not going to be kept uh, in a data center that's run by the world's best engineers. Uh, it might be run by, if it's a bank, yeah. and the bank is told that it can't use cloud services provided by U.S. or, or Chinese companies, they're going to keep it at home in a server in their basement. And it might not have as much security, and not just cybersecurity, it might not have as much physical security. Somebody might be able to walk in and late at night and download files or or worse, corrupt the files, encrypt the files, um, they're, they're going to be a lot more vulnerable than they would be if they were relying on one of the, the major cloud service companies. Okay. Now, um, you're obviously talking from years of experience in this field, and you're trying to educate uh, policymakers to make the right choice. Uh, but do you also have an idea or an opinion on... Um, What's the awareness of digital technology with, I would say, the non-digital uh, community, the general public? Do we also well, educate those people? A lot of the public learns about technology through journalists, and they've done a great service over the years. I think, in general, they've been a positive impact. But lately, we've seen a lot of sloppy journalism and sloppy metaphors. Uh, one of my least favorite examples is data is the new oil. 
<clears throat> this was on the cover of The Economist magazine about four years ago. I rely upon The Economist for a lot of things, but I don't think we should rely upon The Economist for simple-minded metaphors because while data is valuable and it is like oil, one of the important factors that drives the economy. When people hear data is the new oil, they think it's in a commodity and they think that, you know, it's something that you can only use once or that, you know, that, that and they also think, oh, it's all the same. The truth is data is different. Uh, I like to say you know, that data is the new air when it comes to non-personal data, scientific data in particular should be like air. It should flow around the world. It should be used and reused. It should be mixed in new ways. Um, certain people can take out different components of that data set, just like we take the oxygen, plants take the carbon dioxide. You know, it's there's lots of different uh, ways to use air. There's lots of different types of data and lots of different ways to use it. Um, some people like to say data is the new water, yeah. and that's that also flows around the world and floats in the atmosphere and clouds. But every so often, you get some really valuable water bubbles out of the ground, and you put a nice label on it, and you can charge a great deal of money for that. But it, it's not oil, and that's that 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 simple metaphor is ruining a lot of policies, particularly in developing countries, where there's this idea that if we're going to be part of the digital economy, we have to hoard every bit of data that our citizens produced. And that's exactly wrong. They need to take that data and find ways to combine it with other global data sets and uh, give insights to their people that could never be provided if they didn't share and share alike. Yeah. Mike, this actually reminds me of uh, the classic manager book from Gareth Morgan, Images of Organization, to realize that uh, metaphors are never 100% uh, perfect yeah. representation of reality. And you've just given some great examples. It also reminds me of something I've uh, come across when I prepared uh, my interview with you, is you talk about uh, words that work. Now, um, and we just discussed how important language is to get a message across. Now, what are the key words in your mind, uh, in your opinion, uh, we should be using in a digital world? And next to uh, other other words than water and air compared to oil? Or are there, can you take us along that path? Well, one phrase that I think is incredibly important is data trust. Uh, we know what a trust is for our money. Yeah, We give our money to a organization and its responsibility is to take care of that money, <clears throat> invest it wisely, and to be accountable to us. Um, there's an analogy. Some people call it a data union, like a credit union or a data space, but I think data trust is the best phrase. Um, <clears throat> for one thing, it's shorter, <laughs> fewer syllables. And it also focuses on what really matters, which is the trust between me and the organization. And the vision I have, and people like Sandy Pentland at MIT have explained this very well, it's a, a vision where there are hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of data trusts, just like there are hundreds of thousands of different sub-networks that make up the internet. 
And so with data trusts, we could, we could have a global decentralized data architecture. And I could use one data trust when I go to the hospital, they would keep data about me and they would be, they would be accountable to me. They wouldn't be accountable to some mega corporation or some health insurance company. The health insurance company is going to need some of that data to process my claims and to make sure my doctor gets paid, but they're not entitled to have every bit of my medical record. Same thing about my bank and my grocery store and my pharmacy and my college. I mean, there's a lot of different people who might have a data trust that would maintain some data about me. But in all these cases, if we do it right, I would know what data they have. They would explain to me when they are sharing that data with others, and they would tell me how they secure the data. Okay, that's and, that, and that's that's the that's the image. Now we're going to need some legal uh, work done to define the uh, responsibilities of data trusts, and we're going to have to find some way to compensate uh, me or the data trusts if someone wants to do some research on the data using anonymized data. That's the really exciting thing about this vision. You could imagine that some doctor wants to know whether left-handed Lithuanian plumbers develop a certain type of cancer. And so they could send an intelligent agent with a piece of software that would go out and scan all the medical records in tens of thousands of different data trusts and determine if indeed there is some likelihood that left-handed Lithuanian plumbers get cancer more often or less often. They wouldn't need to see the names of everybody. They just would need to see a few columns in the spreadsheets. And that, that's the kind of image we have of a world where data flows freely and yet it's protected. Okay. And yet my, my, my personal privacy is protected. It's uh, it almost has a. F I'm thinking of the tail wagging the dog in this case. That almost by renaming it to the need for a data trust, it, it actually has influence on your thinking and it has influence on the data architecture. Yeah, the I'll alternative is a data ocean, and yeah. we have these data brokers, and we have the social media companies, and we have in some cases cloud companies that are able to suck up huge amount of data from tens of thousands of different organizations. And they're liable to no one. No. They are, well, they're liable to their own stockholders, which means they're often finding all sorts of creative ways to invade my privacy and to uh, market information about me that I often can't trace. I can't object because I don't know. So I want to see mutually assured disclosure. I give my data to the data trust. They tell me how they're using it and why. And at the end of the day, if we have that level of trust, I'm gonna provide more data and it's gonna be more useful to more people, but I'm also gonna have more data about what's being done. Got it. Um, I'm thinking of um, another take on this is, you grew up, you were around when the internet started to uh, develop, you were around when Al Gore was in uh, as a vice president. Uh, promoting the internet. Uh, we lived in a time 
uh, where we were very optimistic that what the internet could bring society, more democracy, we saw the, the Arab Spring taking place. Um, are you still that optimistic? I'm still very optimistic about the technology. I'm rather pessimistic and cynical when it comes to the politics. But in the long run, I think we're gonna be in a very good place if the politics don't get in the way of competition. Okay. And that's my biggest concern. They, they can try to regulate and they censor and control, but as long as there's room for new competitors and new innovation, I think we're gonna be okay because the new competitors can often outpace the kind of slow and clunky uh, efforts to define what the internet can do and what it can't do. Um, but it's gonna take some time. We're working through some things. There's an, a magnificent book called The Victorian Internet. It's by Tom Standage and it's, it's the story of the telegraph. And it's, it's very similar. There, was, there were incredible hopes and then the technology didn't quite work. A lot of money was wasted and there was fraud and there was a bubble just like there was with the dot-com sector and the early fiber optic cables. But over time, the telegraph fundamentally changed uh, markets, fundamentally changed how governments did their business. And the internet's already doing that, but there's much more to come. I mean, that's what people don't understand. Every time I hear someone say, oh, the internet is a mature technology now and it needs to be regulated like every other mature technology, I hear that and I know that person doesn't know what they're talking about because we are going to see a lot more traffic, a lot more devices connected to the internet, a lot more tools to take advantage of all the data that's flowing. Um, and with time, those tools are gonna to give us answers to some of the questions that, that plague us today. Okay. Prob problems like disinformation or cyberbullying or illegal activities online. Mm -hmm. One thing we, we, we talked about in Malaysia was uh, digital identity. And the fact that we haven't gotten that right yet because no one seems to care that you have to design digital identity in a way that protects the privacy of the users. Um, many of the people providing identity services today think it's a great way to track what everybody does online. That's not the design spec that's going to satisfy most users. True. Uh, Mike, I, I, I wanna backtrack a little bit uh, and link this now to the whole accountability discussion because you, you've talked about okay how you uh, uh, help policymakers understand what's actually behind the technology they can look at mm -hmm. uh, the need for the right words so um, they have a, a better understanding what what they're looking at um, at the same time um, this incident was instigated by UNESCO because they became aware that their members, the member states, were complaining about the very fast developing technology and the legal and regulatory framework, which cannot keep up with. And you just said you had you, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's only going <laughs> to explode. So that gap between the digital technology and the policy the, uh, to regulate it is only growing Um What's your take? What is policy the, the, the routes to go? Or do you see 
other or additional instruments we can put in play to govern technology? We have a new report out on data policies in Korea and India. Okay. And the chapter about Indian open data is absolutely fascinating because they've built something called the uh, digital empowerment and protection architecture. And their idea is that they don't need laws if they can design a technology platform that actually solves a lot of the problems that citizens are worried about, particularly privacy and um, quality of data. And so this is called DEPA, D-E-P-A, and it allows government agencies and private sector entities like banks to, to load their data into this architecture and ensure that only authorized users will get access to the data that's stored there. Okay, and, now it's, that's... A, and it's a huge, a huge service. It's you know designed to meet the needs of hundreds of millions of Indians in all levels of society. I, I, I realize India is a very significant part of this world, uh, although it's just one country in almost, what is it, we almost have 200 countries, 190 plus countries. So um, what would that mean for all the other countries out there? Should they follow that example or can, can they do their own thing? And then how are we going to collaborate with each other? Well, we are starting to do a lot on digital identity and India has created the India stack. It's basically three services. Deepa is one of them. Adnar, uh, Adhar is uh, the identity service that a billion people have now used. Um, and that's another key piece of it. And we're starting to see countries come to agreement on how they will recognize each other's digital identity services. Um, there were eight countries, primarily English-speaking countries, that have agreed to, to do that. Um, that. That was announced just about six months ago, uh, led by the Canadians but there, and the Australians. But there's uh, a lot more to be done. Uh, Estonia has been pushing its answer to digital identity and a couple other countries are following suit. But I think the key is to be able to be transparent and show how these identity services protect the user's privacy and at the same time protect the security of the systems that are being accessed using the identity service. Uh, that's been one of the problems with uh, Aadhaar in uh, India. They, they unfortunately had some data breaches and uh, hundreds of millions of records were, were disclosed. Okay. In making that a reality, uh, who in your view are the, the key players we should invite uh, to have that multi-global stakeholder discussion to resolve this issue, these issues? I think you have to look at the different pieces of the puzzle. And, and again, there's this impulse that you see, particularly at the United Nations, to have one big meeting and have everybody come together, much more logical to take different pieces of the puzzle, different, different services, and ask, okay, what do I need to do to make sure the domain name system is secure and reliable? What do I have to do to insert better security and particularly fight against spoofing and 
DDoS attacks, and 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 then this whole question of of how do I establish the identity of users uh, on social media sites and other services that can be used to uh, share disinformation and propaganda. Uh, this has been a huge issue here in the United States, particularly with Twitter, but uh, it pops up in lots of other places too. And we, we, we don't necessarily need to know the names and identities of everybody who does everything online, but we need to have some kind of pseudonym or some attributes that allow us to uh, know some basic information about somebody. Um, I always like the Twitter blue check mark mm -hmm. service, and that that has proven to be very successful in avoiding having celebrity accounts run by people who aren't the celebrity. Okay, so you do see solutions being provided to govern technology, not necessarily policy based. So right, and and the, that's the Indian approach. They figure yeah. they can move in months by installing technology platforms that meet the needs and they can experiment. They can try a couple different things and see what works. Passing a law, particularly in India, can be a five or 10 year ordeal. Yeah. And then at the end, you probably end up with a law that's five or 10 years out of date and doesn't incorporate some of the most important new developments. That's what happened to the famous cookie law in Europe. Uh, more than 10 years ago, most websites used cookies to track what people were doing. Well, there's some more sophisticated ways to do that today. And as a result, all those cookie warnings that we sign off on aren't doing much good when it comes to these websites that use leading edge tracking technology. Okay, so I'm hearing you say that there are uh, already great examples of technology we can use to replace or um add to uh policy de development i'm also hearing you say that if i understand you correctly uh having a global multi-stakeholder discussion is not going necessarily going to be the best route be more agile get the relevant people at the table i think that's yeah. what's worked well and i mean it's it's a little bit of a heresy to say this but sometimes you want the 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 best 40 people in the world around the table who have responsibility for implementing solutions to a particular problem and having a 400 person meeting with more multi-stakeholders who represent a lot of different interests but may not have a clue when it comes to actually implementing a solution or in some cases, these are self-appointed people who show up and say, well, I represent this community, listen to me. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, they don't really have anybody listening to them. <laughs> I mean, this is, again, I'm, I'm characterizing a, a minority of the people who show up at yeah. multi-stakeholder meetings like the Internet Governance Forum. But there is, in, in my experience, about a third of the people in the room who are in a place to get something done, they have the tools to develop these systems and they are connected to the people who together can implement the problem. And yeah. another third of the people are well-meaning people and they are there to make sure that their community 
understands what's going on and they provide some very useful insights. And then sad to say, there's another third that mostly are there to make sure there's another meeting. And in some cases to slow things down so that they have more leverage and that they can somehow insist on something they want, which may be completely outside the scope of the meeting. I mean, that's the most frustrating thing is when technical meetings get politicized and you see, you see geopolitics coming into the picture. Um, we just had that two days ago at the United Nations International Telecommunications Union. Uh, very, very important election to determine who the new secretary general would be. And a very talented American woman, Doreen, Doreen Bogdan Martin was elected. Uh, everybody was very happy. I mean, most people thought she was intensely qualified. She's worked at the ITU. She's handled a lot of these issues. But it was a it was a geopolitical fight. And you had the President of the United States putting out a statement, and you had all sorts of side deals being done, uh, particularly on the other side, to try to get votes for Doreen's uh, opponent. Um, and and I, 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 I'm so naive, I still think it would be good if we could somehow reward the most capable person and the best connected person and the person with the most experience. Um, Every so often that does happen. Well, at least we know that Doreen is uh, extremely capable of, for, I believe, over 20 year, 28 years at the ITU. So and the new, the new Deputy Secretary General is also very talented. He's a Lithuanian who's worked in a number of different countries on telecom issues and, uh, well, again, well-respected and uh, uh, well-plugged into the, the global uh, telecom policy community. Definitely hope. Hey, uh, Mike, it's great talking to you so far, but I'm going to ask uh, end with one final question, because uh, it's one of the topics also you cover uh, in your work as a professor at Georgetown, as a former professor, and that's how to predict the future. And I was wondering if you could take us on your prediction of the future of the Internet. Well, the class I taught at Georgetown was entitled How to Predict the Futures, uh -huh. so a parentheses S. Uh, because I started the first day saying, if you think I'm going to tell you exactly what the future is going to be for digital technology or anything else, you're going to be disappointed and you should take a different class. Uh, what we did in the class was we developed scenarios to explore a range of outcomes and particularly to track down the two or three drivers that will really be most important on shaping our future. And I, 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 that's hard to do with the internet as a whole, but you can look at specific services and say, okay, this is going to be shaped by uh, the incredible flood of information we're seeing and by the desire of governments and corporations to collect as much as possible and, and use it uh, in some cases, to benefit them and and to exploit customers, I mean, you can you can focus on the two or three things that that will sort of shape the environment, but you always have to be ready for new developments that might push things in different directions. And it's it's fun to speculate. It's not only fun to speculate; it's essential that you speculate so that you can develop strategies that will work for a number of different outcomes. Okay. Uh, I always say that there's a, the futurist's challenge 
when it comes to technology, it's not too hard to look at the trends and determine how much more computing power we'll have or how much cheaper networking might be. It's a little harder to figure out what we might do with that. Even back in 1988, when I was working with Senator Gore and we held the first hearing about high performance networks, we could see that the networks we had then, which were about 56,000 bits per second in the very fastest networks, we're going to be obsolete in a few years and we would have megabits per second and we would eventually have gigabits per second and we could understand that that would be used for video conferencing for downloads of huge amounts of data from data libraries and and, and digital services but we weren't able to guess some of the business models that would de develop things like craigslist yeah. or online dating i mean these were not things that we thought of and we certainly weren't able to go to the fourth step. After you determine what kind of crazy business models and new businesses might develop, determining the impact those businesses will have on society, whether it's Uber changing the patterns of traffic in major cities or Craigslist depriving local newspapers of about half of their income because classified ads aren't effective anymore. Uh, the, these are the, the, the cascade, this is part of the cascade of effects. And that last step is always the hardest, knowing how our society will reorganize in response to the creative, crazy new services that will develop online or on our phones or uh, somewhere else. Okay. One then final extra question from my side okay it's the last question it's always the hardest yes and that's your take on what's the future for accountability in a digital age if we have transparency and if we have companies and governments who have empathy for the users of technology i'm very optimistic that accountability will be built in if on the other hand we don't have much competition in the marketplace and governments are not responsive to the voters, then you end up with one or two powerful companies and they can just do what they want. So it's not a matter of technology solving the problem. It's a matter of our politics solving the problem. Well, and, that, and again, that requires policies that enable new players to come in and compete and it re requires that we sustain our democracy, or in some cases, uh, help countries become more democratic and help governments become more responsive to their citizens. I mean, even in, in, in governments today that aren't transparent and are not democracies, they're starting to see that they need to track what their, their citizens are thinking. So they might not be having a vote every four years or every six years, but they are doing a lot of political polling. In some cases, they're tracking what's being said on the internet and that's being used to shape some of the policy choices. Now, clearly there are places like North Korea where they don't care a bit about their citizens, but there's a lot of other, um, 
I can, I guess I would say, um, increasingly responsive autocrats. And, and, and I think it's, at some point they might start realizing that uh, they have to go another step. And China has already realized this at the local level. Uh, the Communist Party is not going to give up control at the top level, but they are they are actually allowing some local elections. Uh, they're you know tracking where there's dissatisfaction with local leaders, and in some cases, the national government is pushing them out and allowing new leaders to be chosen, and that's giving those local leaders more credibility and more. Um, power that they can then use to fix problems for citizens. So um, again, I'm a hopeless optimist. Um, we're certainly going to have autocrats for a long time, and we have threats to our democracy here in the U.S. and elsewhere. But in the long run, technology empowers people, data empowers people, information, knowledge, wisdom, all that will be available in larger supply because of, of technology. And uh, we can come back in 10 years and talk about whether I'm right. Mike, that's a deal. We're going to come back in 10 minutes. Uh, although we've come full circle in this interview, because in my mind, you've also given us a, a good ending why in the beginning uh, we talked about your role as helping to explain technology to policymakers, why it's so relevant. So I want to thank you for taking us on that journey, uh, making some uh, predictions and uh, giving us some words to think about. So Mike, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to continuing the conversation.